Welcome to Meet the Author at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Please welcome our guests this evening, Tony Law and Mary Beard. Uh, so many of you will probably wonder who the hell I am. Fine, not what you don't wonder. Um, uh, I'm a, a sort of a stand-up comedian, and yes, I do cut my own hair. I, I, I'm nailing it so far. Anyway, uh, Mary and I became He's friends the warm routine. on uh, <laughs> how we met was on uh, Twitter. Actually, it was about three and a half years ago. Uh, it was like when um, uh, Mary's uh, Rome documentary was out. My daughter, uh, the only way she could get to sleep, she, by the way, she used to watch most of it, but she was four and she would always watch, she would always say, I want uh, Mary, 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 where's Mary's bike? And anyways, one day we were in a, having a Sunday pub lunch and she took her Mary book, which is a big Rome book, and uh, fell asleep reading it. So I just thought I'd tweet it. And uh, charming story that. And uh, then we started tweeting again, became friends until uh, Trollgate, when, uh, when all these hideous, misogynist, <laughs> crazy arse faces just were hideous. And uh, my way of trying to join in and uh, defend Mary was to become the dictator Sulla. <laughs> and I adopted that moniker and just kept attacking them in the most surreal way possible. And then it. It got bigger and bigger, and suddenly there was 10,000 people with different Roman names all shutting down websites. And then anyway, and then, uh, then we, uh, we got hammered at your last book launch. <laughs> and then uh, I did some gigs for the uh, Teenage Cancer Trust and met uh, my other hero, uh, Roger Daltrey, who said, uh, anytime you want to come to a gig at The Who, Tony, just say it and uh, bring whoever you want. So I said, Mary, do you want to go to The Who? And there was me and Mary Beard, uh, and I believe your son, Raph, just kept going back and forth to the bar. Anyways, it was fun. And, oh, fine, uh, yeah, I, I felt you dominated Roger's um, time more. So that's pretty much, I don't know why I'm here other than that. Oh yes, it's comedy, isn't it? But tell us about the book. Mary, because I've, I've been through it. I've read it three times now. <laughs> He's uh, a quick reader. He only got it yesterday. <laughs> so uh, what's, what, what, what's the deal there? What guy started um, on that? I'm not going to be as funny as Tony, but... Um, I don't know. I'm dying here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose, I mean, how did I come to write this book? Well, the truth is that I just written a book on the Roman triumphal procession, you know, the victory parade of the Roman general, you know, dressed up as Jupiter Optimus Maximus, having slaughtered thousands of the enemy, um, going up to the Capitoline Hill with his booty and his slaves and his prisoners and all the rest. Just spent five years of my life doing that. And I was asked to give some lectures in Berkeley, California, and I thought, I'm not going to pass that up, you know, a term in Berkeley, it was wonderful. But eventually, after I'd said yes, they kept saying to me, 
so what are you going to give these lectures on? Six lectures, what are they going to be on? And at that point, I was just in the closing stages of this very militaristic book about Rome. And I thought, let me do anything but anything that's not about power, control, killing, slaughter, and the Romans being generally nasty. So I sat out one day. Sex, you wrote a lot oh, about sex, sex yes, as well. Sex. Yeah. I wasn't going to have much about sex, and there's not much Sorry. about sex in the book. Um, I thought, I'll do something completely different. So, you know, helped by a gin and tonic, I thought, what's different? And I thought, and I just straight away wrote back, and I said, knew nothing about it. I said, I'm going to do Roman laughter. And it really, I thought, I've got a year and a half to find out something about Roman laughter. Um, now, I suppose what happened is that it was different from the triumph, but in a funny way, what you discover when you come to look at the Romans is that everything is about power and control in some way. So I'm afraid that, although I thought I was escaping nastiness when I came to do joking, I found that there were those horrible, horrible bits of Roman sadism, which comes out in laughing as much as it comes out in killing. You know, so quite a lot of the book, or one chapter of the book, is really about Roman emperors who are always liable to use laughter to make people feel small, uh, to humiliate them, to crush them. Uh, so you've got, and that goes from really mad emperors like Elagabalus in the third century, who actually was the inventor of the whoopee cushion. And he used to have people to dinner and he would sit them um, on cushions um, which he would have slaves go and gradually let the air out. So they ended up literally under the table. Not under the table because they were pissed, um, but under the table because everything had just deflated. And uh, that was... You know, that was reasonably m mild, but you know, the, the other guy who was you know, particularly nasty was, of course, Caligula. And he would always, always be using laughter to kind of get at you. So there's one great story of Caligula. He's at dinner, uh, two guys on either side of him, you know, really top Roman consuls. Um, and Caligula starts to laugh. And they say, kind of terribly politely, at the moment, excuse me, sir, um, you know, uh, could you share the joke with, uh, with us? You know, they weren't sure what he was laughing at. And he said, oh, that's easy. I was just thinking that I only have to click my fingers and I could have you both decapitated. Ha, ha, ha. Boom. <laughs> so, but you, uh, have you memorized all those, like, 270 or something? What, how many have do we have? Uh, well, what Tony's referring to there is uh, what I discovered, and I have to say, until I came to work on the book, I didn't know about it. Um, the saviour of someone wanting to work on Roman laughter is there is, amazingly, a surviving Roman joke book. Um, so you didn't need to write this at all? So I didn't need to write it at all. Uh, and in fact, the last chapter, just to give a little kind of commercial here, the last chapter is indeed about the Roman joke book. Um, and what it is is about 260 jokes. I say about because some of them are exactly the same, you know, like in all joke books. Uh, 260 jokes, um, all ordered 
by category of joke. So it starts with a hundred jokes about absent-minded professors, right? And then it goes on to jokes about stupid people from the city of Abdera, sex-crazed women, um, cowardly boxers. You know, so it's a whole set of cowardly boxer jokes. Sounds like Mark the Week. Uh, I'll stop. Um, and I will give you, just so you get a sort of flavour of what they're like, because they're not all bad. I mean, Tony, uh, this is where, in fact, this is very stupid, because Tony would tell them much better than me. Uh, but I've been practising. Um, you know, the kind of absent-minded professor joke goes a bit like this. Um, and this is probably the best one in the collection, so you'll you kind of get the measure of it. Um, there's a bald man, a barber, and an absent-minded professor, and they're going on a journey. And it's a long journey, so they decide that, because they've got quite a lot of luggage with them that they don't want to lose, that they'll camp out and they will keep watch over their luggage in turn. And the guy who's going to take the first turn is the barber. Um, and he's supposed to do three hours, but after an hour or so, he gets really bored. So in order to pass the time, he shaves the head of the absent-minded professor, because that's what barbers do when he's got his kit with him. Um, when it's the end of his shift, three hours' time, it's his job to wake up the professor who's going to take the next turn. So wakes up the prof, prof kind of, you know, stretches out, puts his hand to his head and says, what a bloody idiot that barber is. He's gone and woken up Baldy instead of me. <laughs> I don't do jokes, so <laughs> that was good. What about some of those surreal, like, death ones? Oh, yeah. Those are awesome. <laughs> he's, he's always into black humour. And there's these, there are a whole set of, of kind of wonderfully quirky, almost, actually, if this wasn't so old-fashioned now, Monty Python-esque sort of jokes, um, where you've got, say, another absent-minded professor. Um, he meets a guy on the street and says, God, um, that's odd. Um, I thought you were dead. Uh, the guy says, no, you can see, you know, here I am, you know, I'm fine. He says, well, that's odd, because the man who told me you were dead is much more reliable than you are. <laughs> it's like the same one as the slave one. The slave, yeah, right, okay. So he's, he has read the book. He just set her up and she'll just. keep knocking him out. <laughs> she'll be standing up, really. Um... Um, a guy um, buys a slave from a mate. Um, and after a few days, the slave dies. This is the dead parrot sketch, almost. Slave dies. Um, so the guy goes back to complain to the bloke who sold the slave and says, um, hey, that slave you sold me, he went and died. That's funny, said the seller. You never did that when I owned him. So there's no new jokes in the world, is there? <laughs> so what, uh, what's, what, what have we learned? <laughs> what have we learned? Well, uh, like yeah. between them and us, what's the difference? What, oh. I th what I think is 
you know, actually, to put the academic hat on here for a bit, what I think is really interesting about the joke collection is that what it does is take you, like a modern joke book would, it takes you into a kind of... into the anxieties and the problems of ord relatively ordinary people in the ancient world that we don't usually see. Uh, and sometimes it kind of opens the... It kind of just opens the curtain slightly on uh, sort of the, the sort of hidden cultural concerns of the ordinary Roman person. And I think, in some ways, the jokes that um, I've told you do that. I mean, I mean, I guess we're quite used to death jokes. You know, there isn't a culture. There's not a word culture which somehow hasn't been a bit anxious about death. You know, undertaker jokes as sort of you know, go the world over, but. One really big theme in Roman joking is, is one that comes out in that barber, baldy and absent-minded professor gag and also in the, um, in a way, in the, 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 you know, somebody told me you were dead. Uh, these jokes repeatedly harp on in ways that ours don't. They repeatedly harp on to the big Roman question for every ordinary person, which is how the hell do you know who you are? Or how can you show who you are? And it's a kind of, it's a question that, you know, modernity is completely shelved apart from it, uh, in, you know, particularly micro areas like refugee status or the passportless or the nationless, the stateless. For us, you know, it, we have no problem, A, knowing who we are, knowing what our date of birth is and being able to produce some government-issued ID, passport, driver's licence to show who we are. These Roman jokes constantly worry about how can, you, how can you show who you are? How do you know it's you? Was it you who died or was it your twin brother? Right? And so in some ways what I'm doing is I'm kind of using these jokes and sometimes they are, you know, they remain a bit funny and that's another question. I'm using these jokes to sort of lift the lid on kind of Roman cultural anxieties, which are sometimes, I think, even odder, really, than that. I mean, one of the things, I've, you know, I've read these 260 jokes more time than any other person in the world has read these 260 jokes. Um, but you still start, you still find yourself seeing new things. And it suddenly struck me that an awful lot of jokes in the book are somehow concerned with number. It's how do you know what a number represents? So uh, I'll just give you a couple of examples. And uh, One is... Um, a bloke, it's got a very nice country estate. It's rather plush, he, he likes it a lot, but he's just a bit dissatisfied that it's so far from town. So what he does is he goes and he takes up seven of the milestones on the way to make it nearer, right? Or there's the one which I've actually is also um, told um, in the modern world. The guy who says to a friend, are you going abroad? I'd really like you to bring me two 15-year-old slaves. And the guy says, yeah, if I can find you two 15-year-old slaves, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll bring them back. Um, and if I can't find two 15-year-olds, then I'll bring you one 30-year-old. <laughs> when I first told that to 
um, my students at Berkeley, um, they were absolutely convinced that it was a sex joke. Um, that despite Tony's desires to find sex in these jokes, there's not much sex joking in this book. And they thought, oh, this is, this is like, you know, if, if we were to say, oh, are we going to go and hang out with two 20-year-old girls or one 40-year-old? Uh, we'd know that was a, 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 a slightly misogynistic comment on the, um, the physical characteristics of the 40-year-old. But I became absolutely convinced it wasn't really about sex at all in the Roman case. It's about number. They're constantly wondering about what numbers mean. How do you know what a number represents? And they're constantly joking about uh, that kind of numeration. So, uh, so as a kind of professional ancient historian who's kind of interested in more than jokes, I thought that these things offer you a kind of glimpse um, beneath the surface of, you know, what real Romans talk about and worry about, are anxious about all the time. There are loads of really surreal, weird ones as well, aren't there? Yeah, oh, some, some I know what you're thinking of. Real mental He's, ones. He's thinking about, I mean, some of them, they kind of pass the bounds of what we would think of as good taste. Um, though in a sort of slightly strange way, I think the, the positively nastiest in the collection is just a one-liner, which is about a guy from the city of Abdera. The city of Abdera is in the eastern Mediterranean, and they're always telling jokes about people from the city of Abdera, quite why we don't know, but they're kind of often... It was very a shithole, wasn't it? It was a shithole, yeah. Uh, but I was going to say slightly more riskily, it's like the English telling jokes about the Irish, you know, or the French telling jokes about the Belgians. You know, how many kind of how many Abderites does it take to screw in a light bulb is the sort of theme. They so had light bulbs. <laughs> you one of our little me. secrets. <laughs> I mean, the one I like about you know the how stupid they are before I get to the bad taste one is um, the Abderite. Um, meets a eunuch, and the eunuch is walking along with a rather attractive um, young young woman, and he, he says, "Oh, I'm pleased to meet you, and, and this must be your wife." Uh, to which the eunuch says, um, "People like me don't have wives." Ah, oh, says the man from Abdera. So it's your daughter then. Ha <laughs> ha. That wasn't the one I meant. But no, the one you meant, <laughs> I know the one. You, I, mean, I can read your mind, Law. The one he's <laughs> thinking of is the Abderite who um, sees um, a professional runner being crucified. And he says, um, gosh, he really is flying now, isn't he? <gasps> it's good, right? <laughs> it is, enough time has passed. <laughs> not too soon. I think that, you know, that on British telly, it would not be easy to tell a crucifixion joke, even after the watershed. Clarkson would get away with it. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> well, I think one, one of the things that are funny about these is that you know, there, there are some really bad ones, and I'm kind of sparing you some of the ones which, which people have puzzled over, trying to make some sense of them. And I think they're just bad jokes, you know, like the barber's assistant who you find crying. Why are you crying? 
you say to the barber's assistant, oh, because I've trimmed your nails and I've hurt you, so my master will be cross. That sounds like my, t my material. <laughs> just, just say a bunch You're of words and hope for the best. But some <laughs> of the stuff is just, I mean, I remember what, the one thing that really struck me was um, discovering that what that there's ancestry of some of the kind of famous bits of modern political or other repartee actually is in these jokes. And that the, the best example of all is a joke that Enoch Powell made. Um, Enoch Powell was having his hair done in what was then um, the House of Commons's own in-house barber. Apparently, they no longer have one, but they used to have an in-house barber so that the largely blokes could get their hair trimmed uh, without having to go outside. This guy, uh, and the guy actually is still alive and confirms this story, um, this guy called, I think, Sidney Silverman, um, he uh, was a very garrulous character. And he was always telling the MPs that he had in his chair, you know, how he thought the world should be organised and, you know, what, um, you know, what they should do and how they should vote, um, rather tediously. And so Powell goes in and the barber says, as barbers always do, um, how would you like a haircut, Mr Powell? Um, and Powell just says, in silence. Uh, what I think is kind of good about that is that, you know, even for the most of us who um, think that Powell's politics were decidedly beyond the pale, um, even Powell's kind of worst enemies do tend to concede that was quite a good joke, you know. Um, and you can find it in lots of places on the web with people doing the usual build-up, saying, I couldn't stand his politics, but this was quite clever. Um, what almost everybody failed to realise, though I'm sure Powell knew, because he was you know, one of, actually, although in some ways a ghastly politician, he was one of the world's best classicists. Um, that joke is actually from the Roman joke book. Um, absolutely the same. Man goes to a garrulous barber, how would you like your haircut, sir? In silence, says the customer. And in fact, it goes back even further than that um, to a joke made by a fourth century Macedonian king, who's saying actually exactly the same. So. In one way, what you've got here is you've got these jokes partly being very, very foreign to us, you know, crucifixion jokes, eunuch jokes, you know, but partly being really the building blocks with which our own modern repartee is constructed. And that kind of, um, that was a surprise. I have to say that was a surprise to me. Well, uh, what, uh, do you want to do questions? Or you had enough? I I just want to say one thing, I think, and then do questions, because one of the things I try to do in the book is to think... Explain what happened to your eye. Explain. <laughs> 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 oh, yeah. And mine. <laughs> I've, I've got, like, a red eye. And I've got a plastic black snake. eye. You've got yeah. a black eye. I, I was in a bike collision. A brawl. I was in a brawl. A brawl on a bike. And it wasn't very funny at the time, but it does <laughs> seem now You should see funny. the state of Gil. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> two. That's too clever. Okay. I, I suppose I want to say one thing before we start to, to open this up, because it's kind of part of the point of writing about Roman jokes and Roman laughter. I mean, part of the point is to understand the Romans better. 
you know, and it has a very, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm quite interested in how this can take you into the ancient world, but I'm also interested in us thinking, and me thinking really, a bit harder about why we laugh and what, you know, what it is that, how, or how laughter operates in our own culture. And again, I think we kind of, we, we tend to have a whole load of quite untrue myths about laughter, which after you've worked on it a bit and looked at it, you sort of um, you begin to see through. And one of those myths is that uh, laughter is absolutely uncontrollable. You know, and we, we have a few kind of type cases of that. Like, I don't know, I, I don't know if anybody else remembers that time when Charlotte Green, who was a newsreader on the Today programme, completely corpsed when she was reading an obituary because somebody had told her a joke um, about the previous item. Um, she, she, they just discovered the world's earliest recording of the human voice. And as they were playing it, somebody in the studio said to her, God, it sounds like a bee in a bottle. Um, and she, at that point, completely lost it. And she couldn't read the next rather solid obituary item um, because she was has this terrible fit of the giggles. And in some ways, I think we think about laughter like that. Uh, that's, that's what, you know, laughter is something that kind of erupts when you don't want it to. You know, you're laughing at the teacher you go to. You know, you go and hear Tony and you just can't help yourself. And yet, the more I looked at, the more I read about our laughter and Roman laughter and I looked at how it worked, the more I thought, well, okay, there are some occasions like that. But mostly, we laugh in ways that are social, that are kind of reassuring. Most laughter is not actually at jokes. Most laughter is, comes in our conversations, one with each other, where we go, <laughs> just to kind of encourage other people. An, an awful lot of laughter is learned and socially constructed, you know. And I think that's when you come back to, A, you go to one of Law's shows and... Okay, he might They're be. They're conditioned he, to laugh without any jokes. He might be fantastically funny, but partly you laugh because you've gone along there in order to laugh. You know that's what the point is. You know you you are going to join in. You paid your money. You're going to enjoy yourself and you laugh. And um, that's also true. I think when you. So that's the only. That's the only reason. <laughs> so he's really good at this. He's really good, but you know to laugh at him. But what it came to remind me mostly of was having kids and realising that when your kids are little, the one thing that you spend a hell of a lot of time teaching them to do is when to laugh and when not to laugh. You know, you know, you, know, you are in the bus and there is an extremely fat man who is bald sitting opposite and your toddler starts to laugh and you say, no, 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 don't, don't, don't laugh, don't laugh. And yet you then sit them down in front of the telly uh, and the Simpsons, and you kind of start them off on the socialization of laughter. And you say, you encourage them to laugh, and you laugh. And in some ways, why laughter gives such a great insight into a culture is because it's something that we all learn to do together. 
you know, we, you know, we don't learn to defecate. We don't learn to pee, but we yeah, learn you, to laugh. If you lived in isolation and, and heard a fart when you were 10, you might not laugh. You might not. I but think, we also I think know it's what you meant. We also know that we laugh a hell of a lot more when we're together than when we're on our own. You, you know, funny as law is, if you got one of you face to face on your own in a room pieces. and said, right, okay, I'm now going to do a routine for you, you would find it much harder to laugh than if everybody's together and we're all having a good time, which is, of course, why they put canned laughter on wow, television you are comedy shows. roasting me. So we can. So, so, do you think we should? You I know. didn't know how much I was supposed to cut in. I, I think I let you go pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> do you think we should have some? Do you think we should have some general uh, chat now? I think you should. <laughs> it's obviously an easy way to work out how funny we find Roman jokes. But how does it work the other way? Do you think? I mean, from like from all the research you've done, how funny do you think the Romans would find jokes that are told nowadays, sort of cultural references aside? I mean, you mentioned Monty Python and the, uh, the dead mm. parrot jokes having a Roman equivalent. How yeah. successful would the Pythons be back then? Um, that's a really tricky one. Um, I've got a, an Italian friend, and she was saying to me that the time, w the moment that she realised that having been here about 10 years, she actually found Monty Python funny was when the moment she realised she'd become English. You know, that all up to that point, she'd sat and she could understand every blasted word and she didn't see why it was funny. And when she started to laugh at Monty Python, she saw that she'd ceased to be Italian in cultural terms and had become English. Did, the, uh, did their jokes sort of evolve from, say, the Republic onwards? I think it's, you know, I... So it's I'm only 260, so... <laughs> Well, we do have what? a few from other, from you know, um, from uh, other uh, sources. But I think w why I think that question's really difficult to answer is that it's not all that easy actually to know which jokes of their own they found funny. You know, so you get this book of 260 jokes. Some of them you don't find funny. Some of them we see similarities. We don't know whether when we laugh at the joke about the two 15-year-olds making a 30-year-old, whether we're laughing for the same reasons as the Romans would have laughed. And we don't know whether, you know, when we have what I think are the feeble jokes about the barber uh, and the, the nails and the, and the barber's assistant crying, we don't know whether... Uh, that was always a feeble joke, you know, and every Roman said, God, that's crap. Um, or whether somehow they see the joke there, which we don't. And, you know, so you think, I mean, I suspect that the Romans would be like my, uh, my Italian friend, because I suspect that it's not just the words that, that kind of construct one's ability to laugh, it's kind of the setting and the context and how it's set up. And all those things would be terribly unfamiliar. Although, I mean, as the Powell joke makes clear, there is that bit of verbal repartee where we feel we're absolutely at one with the Romans. Another nice example that 
um, which is slightly different. It's not really about a joke, but it's it's a wonderful example of Roman laughter, which we look as if we share. Is an example I start at the very beginning of the book, and it's it's a story about a, a Roman senator who's also a historian, and he's uh, at the end of the second century AD. He's sitting in the Colosseum watching the mad emperor Commodus, you know, the star of gladiator, um, up to his antics, pretending to be a gladiator in the arena. And one of the things that Commodus has done is he's not only had a bit of a few mock battles, he's also spent some time decapitating ostriches. And so and after he's decapitated a good few, he comes up to the, to the toffs on the front row of the arena where our senator is sitting, and he waggles the ostrich head with its neck um, in one hand, and he kind of brandishes a sword in the other, as if to say, uh, you know, you watch it, guys, what's happened to these ostriches? Well, could just as easily happen to you. And Dio, who's our source, says, I knew I ought to have been scared. But what really came over me was a fit of the giggles. But I thought, I mustn't giggle. Because if I do, that really will be curtains. So I happened to be wearing, because I was in my best dress, I happened to be wearing a laurel wreath. And I plucked a leaf out of the, out of the wreath, and I bit, put it in my mouth, and I bit on it as hard as I possibly could. And that stopped me laughing and saved my life. And I thought, you know, you only had to read that. And, you know, you're back, you know, in the fourth form, or now called year seven or something, you know. And you've, the teacher's just about to slip on a kind of, you know, on a pile of whatever. And, you know, you're about to giggle and you get your ruler and you bite on it really hard because you know you mustn't laugh. And so you get these wonderful little bits where you sort of think that it's all the same. You know, the Romans would think us funny, we think they're funny. And then, of course, it, it disappears, you know, and they do something which you know, just doesn't, they treat something as funny, which we find not. And you think, you know, you're back to Monty Python, you think, could any other culture, could any other culture understand Monty Python? Could any other culture but laugh at all? Have you tried doing it in a... heads is always funny. funny. Have you tried doing your routines in another language? Have you tried doing it in French? Um, barely do them in English. <laughs> <laughs> So the answer was good. <laughs> Hi. Um, if the Romans were obsessed with kind of quantifying things, what was it, do you think, led them to that? I mean, were they kind of struggling with a sense of identity in some way or a sense of ontology and they're looking to kind of get to grips with who they are? I, th I think they're um, struggling with what we would call um, Piaget-style problems that they have not, at the, at the level of the community of this joking, the notion of what three, five, or 10 is, is, is still problematic. But what is that? So I think they're not obsessed by number. They're puzzled by what the relationship is between the symbol of number 
and how that factors into real quantity. Now, uh, my mum was a primary school teacher and uh, she was always going on about how one of the things you did at primary school was get kids to understand the threeness of three, you know. And you do that by saying here you've got, you know, two building blocks and here you've got one building block and uh, if I put them together, does that make three building blocks? And why is that different from two and one? And you know, insofar as I understand the, the development of primary education in maths, and the, you know, the most amount of time is, is spent in actually getting kids to understand what a fraction is, what an integer is, uh, what it means to add or take away. And it, you know, it's more complicated than we think because of course the joke about the two 15-year-old slaves versus one 30-year-old slave um, would, would be quite different if it was two 15-pound bags of flour, which really uh, would be, you know, a 30-pound bag of flour would be equivalent in most circumstances to two 15-year-old, two, two 15-pound bags of flour. Um, so I, I think it's about seeing um, a... a actually intellectual problem that they're facing and that we face too but now have incorporated into into as it were education i think i think that's the answer then now that, please let's have this lady at the front <laughs> ah a different question you said this book of jokes was found. Where was it found? In what sort of format uh, is it? Mm. When was it written? Oh, that those, would interest me. Those are all extremely important and tricky questions. Um, and it, the truth is that there is no single book of jokes that exist as the, it's called The Laughter Lover. In, is it written in Greek? Actually, it's a Roman joke book, but written in Greek. And it's called The Philogelos, The Laughter Lover. And we have it only in a series of medieval manuscript copies which give it the same title but none of which are identical. <laughs> so you can see that there's a kind of core of basic jokes and you can see that there's an organising principle which is absent-minded professor jokes come first um, then you quickly get on to men from Abdera you also have um, men from the city of Kaimi um, and men from Sidon and then on so there is some kind of basic template but a series of different medieval versions now I think my hunch about this is that what we've got here is not actually a sort of joke book that somebody at one particular moment sat down and right, invented, but we've got one of those kind of things like Mrs. Beaton's cookery book or Jane Fonda's workout book, now, which is a kind of um, sort of... It's a brand name which have the same kind of organising principles, like all the puddings are in one section, all the roasts are in another, include many through across different editions that are the same, many, but also add and subtract. So it's a sort of kind of messy tradition that comes down to something which we almost have as a book, but never Absolutely clearly. When it was written, is a, is again, that then becomes an interesting point. Uh, 
people who know uh, the history of the Greek language better than I do say that it looks, in terms of the Roman Empire, quite late. The language looks as if it's 4th century AD or 5th century AD. But some jokes clearly go back earlier. But the only dated one is actually dated to 258 AD, um, when the Romans were celebrating um, the thousandth anniversary of their city. And there's a joke again about a stupid absent-minded professor who meets an athlete who's just lost in the millennial games. And the athlete's crying and the guy says, so why are you crying? And he says, just because I've lost the race. And the absent-minded professor says, uh, never mind, I'm sure you'll win in the next millennial games. Uh, is it always men? You say there's the absent-minded professor, the three men walking down the road. There, what about the ladies? Uh, I'm terribly sorry. Um, there are a very few ladies, but they are never the kind of hero of the joke. Um, uh, and quite a lot of it, um, when they do come in, is pretty sort of, you know, either gross or, you might say, fairly standard ancient misogyny, which, you know, goes back to, you're looking pleased, yeah, well, the wife's just died, you know, got a bit of peace, that kind of stuff. Or, then um, this will be cleaner than you think, there are a little clutch of jokes about oversexed women. Um, uh, and they go rather like this. I, the, I think the best one is, um, a man comes home to his oversexed wife, um, and he says, what shall we do tonight? Um, uh, shall we um, have dinner or make love? And the oversex wife says, well, whatever you like, but we haven't got any bread. Uh, I thought that was Jimmy Carr's. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> this is, I mean, I'm afraid it is absolutely typical Roman... Uh, either ignoring of women as the kind of agents and principles of joking or making them the rather crude butt. There's just, if you, if you want a bit of, if you want a tiny bit of glimpse, a glimpse of feminism in Roman joking, the tiniest glimpse you get um, goes back to Julia, who's the rather wayward daughter of the first Emperor Augustus. And there's a little collection, um, again preserved in quite a late source, of not so much jokes, but quips of Julia, of which the best one, but again, reflecting on her kind of sexual licentiousness um, is a, a question about why it is, given that she's such an absolutely inveterate adulteress, why do all her kids look the spitting image of her husband? And she says, that's easy. I only take passengers when the hold is already full. I, I only commit adultery when pregnant. <laughs> wow, <laughs> it's quite good actually. But I don't think <laughs> yes, I don't think it was told. I I don't think we were meant to think, oh feisty lady. I think we were meant to think, uh uh, you know, uh uh. <laughs> Talking about misogyny in ancient Rome, um, what about like the Horace and the Juvenile? Would they would that be classed as like joking it's, or is yeah. it political? Um, 
you know, what a, if we think about Roman satire and things like, um, you know, juvenile, you know, and the whole satire on, um, you know, on, on the wickedness of women, you know, how, how far do people laugh at that? I mean, I talk a little bit about it in the book, but I, I kind of got a bit frightened off it, partly because of just that question, that it's very hard to know um, whether, despite the fact that the title is satire, and we kind of think, oh, satire, people laugh at satire, and we think of TV satire. Um, satire in, in Rome is something rather different. Um, in fact, the word satura means a sort of mishmash, kind of ragbag of everything. And it's really, really hard to know whether you listened to juvenile being read out loud and you chortled, or whether you thought, God, what's Rome coming to? You know, whether it's, you know, in some ways, this Roman satire is frightfully sort of grumpy old men. You know, God, you go down the street in Rome these days, you don't hear a single person speaking Latin. All these people with their bloody foreign languages. I mean, you know, it's kind of a bit of it's quite Nigel Farage-like. Um, and whether people laughed at that or whether they said, too bloody true, you know, Rome is awash with foreigners and immigrants. Or whether they laughed at the guy. I mean, it reminds me very much... Of Top Gear. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, it reminds me very much, in a way, of Till, of till Death is to Part, which I, I remember watching when I was... Mine was, was you're, better. You're too, yeah, yours was better. It was better, but you're too young for this, Tony. You know, we used to sit there and we used to watch Alf Garnet come out with racist words that would have him now banned from the television screens, and we laughed. And what is not clear to me even now, and it would be, it would be impossible to show these teleprograms now, is what it was people were laughing at. Huh? Yeah, you, do you remember? No, I remember... I remember love. I mean, it was misogynist and racist, uh, and yet, and yet it had a huge audience. And were they enjoying the excuse to be misogynist and racist? You can or leave your door unlocked at night, though. <laughs> That's what they said. Didn't they? <laughs> yes. You remember calling her silly moo the whole time? Oh, you silly moo. It was, it was, now it, it was absolutely terrible. But did people say, God, an awful, you know, what, what an awful character. And, or if they, were they laughing at him for being so cretinous? With him. You think they were laughing with him. So anyway, that's why I've large, I mean, I haven't entirely left out satire, but I find it very puzzling because I don't quite know whether it was, whether it was seen to be, and, and Romans don't talk about it. They don't think, God, he is juvenile. He's a, oh, it's a laugh a minute. Um, so it's, it's, so it's, it's on my borderline. Mind you, I also don't do very much about comic drama, because again, it's very hard to know when and how and at what people laughed at in comedies. You know, you go to a comedy and you don't laugh the whole time. And it's sometimes in Roman comedy you can see the joke being signalled, but other times it's very hard to know what was actually funny. Did they ever laugh at their emperor? They did not laugh at the emperor. And in a funny way, laughter was one of those kind of ways in which um, you could judge a good emperor from a bad emperor. Because a good emperor 
could take a joke even about himself and a bad emperor would put you to death. And the, the, the most famous good emperor was Augustus, Julia's dad. And he uh, was reputed to have uh, laughed at this joke, or at least at this kind of little funny story, which again is one that crops up again, um, even in Iris Murdoch, this joke, in The Sea, The Sea, it's uh, in the middle of the novel. Um, uh, Augustus is sitting in his palace and he's been told um, that there's um, a guy in town who looks just like him. And so he's a guy from the provinces. So he goes, I want to see this guy. So they find um, the guy and Augustus says, OK, I'll go and meet him. And he agrees. He looks absolute. They're spitting image. Um, so Augustus says to the man, um, uh, Tell me, young man, was your mother ever in Rome, in the palace? And the man says, quick as a flash, uh, no, sir, but my father was often. And it goes down to Augustus's credit that instead of saying, off with your head, he enjoys a joke with the guy, even with the guy who could joke about his own paternity. So it's a great calibrator of... Um, the good versus the bad emperor. And of course, Marcus Aurelius used to do funny walks. Didn't he? <laughs> Sorry, I hadn't said anything for a while. I know it's your gig, but... <laughs> um, what made you choose the jokes? I mean, when you were researching, what made you choose some jokes other than other? No, no, no. W did they actually make you laugh? Is that, did that have something? Uh... I, I thought, I mean, in some ways... You do it terribly impressionistically, because although I, I suppose I would like to deny it was quite as simple as just what made me laugh, I, obviously I found myself drawn to thinking about those whose, even if I didn't laugh, whose point I could see. Now, that didn't mean that I ignored the others, um, but I spent... And in fact, I spent quite a long time, as many people have, looking at these jokes which seem to be utterly unfunny and trying to work out ways in which they might be. You know, has the text got corrupted with all this monastic copying? Have these poor monks, you know, copying them all out, simply not seen the point? You know, can you restore some idea of a point there? But in the end, although I say very strongly and firmly, as if it's a kind of um, point of principle in the book. Um, you know, look, uh, the history of laughter is as much about those jokes that don't make us laugh as about those that do, you know. Um, and they're about the people who don't laugh, you know, as much as the people who do. I mean, one of the ways that you, you know, you know, you know what it's like when you go to a comedy, uh, actually, the audience is quite crucial, you know, even when you're sitting next to someone who is A, cracking up all the time when you're not, uh, which is extremely off-putting, or B, never laughing when you want to crack up. There's something about that kind of, the variegation of it, which is really interesting. And I'm sure that's true. The drag is it's really hard to say much about bad jokes. You can say, I don't get this. And yet it's actually you can start to kind of discursively explain why you see a point in a joke in which you see a point. It's extremely hard to explain why you don't see a point in a bad joke. 
No, and I think that's true of jokes that you can, joke books you can buy at WH Smith's, which are actually full of jokes that don't make us laugh. You know, um, and in some ways you think that all the jokes that don't make us laugh are in there in order to make us be more impressed with the jokes that do, I guess. I didn't hear that last bit. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> I was thinking about, we kind of touched upon how jokes um, don't really cross cultures very well. Mm. But then I was thinking maybe slapstick is quite a kind of a global yeah. kind yeah. of, a kind of everyone finds yes. it quite funny, like Mr. Bean at the Olympics. It was kind of the most laughed about yes. kind of mentioned thing. So I was wondering yeah. how that played yeah. out in ancient Rome, really. Yeah. Um, the, the drag about slapstick is that um, you can't find it in Rome. That doesn't mean that it's not there, but it doesn't leave much of a textual trace. And, you know, essentially what you're doing is um, reconstructing humour from texts wit, humour and laughter from texts only. And that obviously, that must mean, one assumes it means, that there's lots of bits of laughter provocation that you just don't see. Now, one of the things that made Romans laugh and was, is actually treated as, um, a, as the one genre of ancient literature whose sole point, apart from joking, is to make people laugh, is mime, ancient mime. And mime isn't like, ancient mime isn't like our mime because it isn't silent. Uh, confusingly, ancient pantomime is silent and ancient mime has a script. Uh, we have only very few fragments of ancient mime script. Whether it's slapstick or not, it's not terribly clear, but it's certainly tits and bums. There's loads and loads of tits. What Bakhtin would have called the lower bodily stratum. You know, is the, one of the fragments we have kind of scripts a whole load of, Tony would love this, farts. You know, so it goes fart, 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 fart. So th there is a kind of sort of bodily humour out there somewhere, but that we can hardly kind of get a grip on. But of course, uh, famously on uh, Trajan's column, there was that, uh, were there guys stepping in the bucket? So we do have some slapstick passed down. There was the freeze of, I, I made that up. Is there any graffiti? The yeah, the, the graffiti, there's some Fading. quite good graffiti, but it's rather, it's rather like the jokes in the joke book in its, in its, tenor. Um, they're things like, um, um, oh my god, um, I've just gone and wet the bed. Wasn't my fault, landlord, you didn't put a chamber pot out. Which one assumes is um, meant to be kind of funny. And they're also um, going more towards what we might call the tits and bums lower bodily stratum. There's quite a lot of caricature that you find on Pompeian walls. And they there's a very strong strand of making people's faces um, bear a striking resemblance to human genitalia. Whether this was thought of as funny or not, it's less clear. Very less clear, but it's... Um, um, it is, it, you know, my guess is that... I mean, they, they talk about clowns. But they don't. We don't know what they do. the the only The only instance of knowing what a clown does 
is at the expense of poor old Emperor Claudius when he was young. Emperor Claudius, you know, who's the, the slightly dopey um, elderly guy who everybody thought was an idiot until he was you know, put on the throne. He used to go um, to banquets at the royal palace when he was young, but he was so dopey, he was always going to sleep. No, so everybody else was carousing and Claudius was just nodding off. And they had little clowns called coprii um, at the, in the royal palace. Coprii means literally little shits. So again, we're looking as if we're lower bodily stratum stuff. Um, and what the coprii do is they go and when Claudius is asleep, they put slippers on his hands. So when he wakes up, he rubs his face and he's actually got a scratchy old slipper sole. Now, again, that doesn't seem hugely funny to us, but it's, it's suggesting that there are these kind of bits of, of bodily enactment that were thought, that, that raised a laugh. But what they are... Secret poo they used to do as well, didn't they? Well, I, am, I did better earlier on. I think um, I, I think it's time to. You were wonderful all the way through. Oh, thank you, Tony. Ladies and gentlemen. I think it's <laughs> the beard. <laughs> <laughs>